0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. So one day this summer, my inbox lit up with people sending me a preprint of a paper about something called Borgs. You know, I thought it was a joke at first, some kind of scientific prank. Or a nutcase with a crazy idea, like someone claiming that they've found incontrovertible evidence of alien life. (laughs) You'd be surprised how often that happens. But then I took a closer look at the author list and saw that this paper was written by some fairly reputable UC Berkeley researchers. Okay, actually, they're as reputable as you can get. Two of the senior authors on this paper were Jennifer Doudna, who received the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her work on CRISPR gene editing, and Jill Banfield, a world-renowned geobiologist. And then I did the hard work of actually sitting down and reading the paper, and the parts that I could understand, well, they blew my mind. Yes, indeed, there really are newly discovered entities that assimilate genetic material from the cells that they live with and that biologists are now calling Borgs. So I quickly sent off an inquiry to Professor Jill Banfield, and like any good leader, she deflected all the credit to her graduate student, the lead author of the paper, Basim Alshayib whom we have the honor of talking to today on Strange New Worlds. I'm also pleased that we'll be joined by Elise Cutts, my former co-host and now a graduate student in geobiology at MIT. She joins me as a special co-host on this episode to help me try to understand the biological nature of the Borg. So before we dive into the conversation, let's just have a little primer on microbiology, because there are some pretty big words that people use to describe the littlest life on Earth. So life is categorized into three domains, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya, and which of these three categories you fall into is determined by your cell type. We humans, for instance, are eukaryotes. But our story today involves archaea, who along with bacteria are simple, single-celled organisms. But the stars of our story, the Borgs, are not archaea. In fact, they aren't quite cells at all, as best we can tell. They are massive genetic elements, basically just huge strands of DNA that seem to assimilate DNA, hence their name, from their archaeal hosts. Okay, I think that's good enough for now. I'll let Basim describe the rest. So let's get to it. Basim al Shayab, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. It's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Elise Kutz, it's great to have you back on the show as a special co-host for this episode. How's it going?
1: It's going. I'm starting somehow the second year of my PhD now it's, it's been a blur. You know, I I went to sleep one day and then I woke up and I was a second year graduate student. It's kind of how it feels, you know, with the pandemic and everything, but it's, it's going pretty well. Um, I'm enjoying Boston summer, riding my bike all over the place, dodging cars and doing some cool science with my new group. So I'd say it's pretty good. I've been doing some science writing recently. That's been really fun as well. Very
0: awesome. Yeah, um, send me some links and I'll put them in the show notes to some of the cool stuff that you've been writing lately. I can do that. Yeah. Well, I'm really, really, really looking forward to this chat because today we're going to talk about a paper that Basim recently authored about a real-life biological entity that he calls the Borg. Yes, the Borg. Um, but first, let's get to know you a little bit more, Bosum. I'd like to ask all of our guests, you know, about their Star Trek origin story since this is a science and Star Trek podcast. So could you share a little bit about your relationship to Star Trek
2: yeah so for me I would have to say my favorite series would be the original series. I really got into that mainly because I'm very inquisitive about you know the unknown that's sort of also what drew me into a career in science and mm-hmm. I feel like that series really accentuated how alien worlds could look like. And oftentimes when we go hunting for microbes, we end up thinking to ourselves that these are really odd environments. For example, in this case, we dug very deep into the ground um, in order to do our analysis. How did you find the original series? I think it was when I moved to the US. Uh, So I moved when I was about 16 Mm -hmm. um, and I heard about, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars, but since I grew up in Egypt, it wasn't really that big of a phenomenon there, but I got really into it once I, once I found it and I learned more about you know, Spock and Captain Kirk. I got really excited about those adventures
0: yeah, yeah, there's something about the original series that definitely sparks that imagination. I think maybe because of the honestly terrible production quality of the original series episodes, it gets your own brain moving to try to fill in the gaps, you know, oh, yeah, that that silicon-based life form definitely should not look like a rug. <laughs> so what would it look like? And then you start imagining all these things and how you would actually maybe go digging around on a planet and find something completely wild and completely different i noticed that you, uh, have... you said it
2: way better than i
0: was trying <laughs> to say <laughs> uh, i noticed that you have the next generation bridge uh, in the background have you seen some of the other star trek series as well
2: i have i've watched a bit of the next generation series although i i found myself liking the
0: original more and um i just need to check because we're going to be talking about the borg um have you experienced the borg in star trek yet
2: Yes. Okay, good.
0: <laughs> um, before we dive too far into the Borg, maybe Elise, you can remind our listeners, or maybe for the first time, some of our newest listeners, um, how you got into Star Trek.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I also was an original series Star Trek initiate, and I really appreciate it when I hear that from other people. So I was just like, "Yes," as you were talking. <laughs> um, and it is that sort of like charming kitchiness. Um, But I really first got into it through the 2009 movie. It's it was 2009, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh god. So many um, years ago now. I don't want to think. I don't want to think about that. Um, but yeah, I got into it through the. 2009 movie I had never watched or heard of Star Trek before I came home from the theater you know immediately demanded to go back and eventually my mom was like hey um maybe we don't need to go to the movie theater again for the fifth time can you just watch this old Star Trek and I thought there's old Star Trek you mean there's whole seasons of this so that sort of kicked it all off and I fell into a pattern of re-watching the original series every time I got sick or something and just needed to spend time on the couch. So mm-hmm. definitely got into it through the original series.
0: Well, today we're not going to be talking too much about the original series because the Borg don't appear until the next generation and then subsequently in Voyager and then Star Trek Picard. Um, <laughs> so uh, in Star Trek, the Borg are these cybernetic beings who are connected to a hive mind and assimilate individuals of other species into their collective, adding others' biological and technological distinctiveness to their own. You know, when I was a kid, because I grew up in the 90s watching TNG Deep Space Nine Voyager, the Borg were definitely the number one source of nightmares for me. Um, but as an adult, I've come to really love them as one of my favorite star trek villains so Bosum and elise um let's take a moment to reflect on the borg from star trek um do you have a favorite borg episode or a particular aspect of the borg that really intrigues you
2: um i think i've only seen the one episode where you have the picard Borg.
0: <laughs> yeah where picard gets assimilated that's a great one yes what struck you about that episode that, that makes you still remember it to this day? Um, it's something
2: that you didn't really expect to see. Like you said, the production was pretty old, that it's still surprising to me now how well they did that. But just the idea that species will take over and assimilate other species to improve their own sort of technology is something very analogous in biology to viruses or these sorts of extra chromosomal elements Mm -hmm. um, that I just found really fascinating and sort of what led to to this.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Elise, do you have thoughts on the Borg?
1: Yeah, I don't think I have a favorite Borg episode, but except maybe I guess the I love that the way that humans encountered the Borg was just kind of Picard mouthing off to Q and getting flung out into the universe to meet, you know, something to put him in his place. I do kind of love that human hubris angle. If you can not take a little bloody nose, maybe you ought to go back home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous, with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. I guess my favorite aspect of the Borg is that I think they're just this wonderful playground to think about ideas relevant to humans, which is a little, you know, they're so alien, but really they're kind of asking questions about ourselves. Um, So like the value of individuality, I think that's a big question with the Borg. And, you know, there's no suffering in a Borg cube. There's no hate, there's no racism, there's no sexism, there's no pain. Death is very sanitized and logical and It is sort of a dystopian utopia, but a lot of us would probably rather die than be assimilated into a Borg cube, even though you don't die, you're assimilated and there's no suffering. So like, why is that? Like, what about being an individual is so valuable? And you you could just go on and on and find interesting questions to sort of sink your teeth into about the Borg. But um, thinking about sort of the bounds of the value of individuality And collective good is not something that's restricted to sci-fi like what freedoms are you willing to give up for the good of your collective like when should we assimilate when should we be individuals those are like kind of eternal questions and the borg being so you know extreme on one end of the spectrum provide kind of a a mirror to reflect on these things so i think they're sci-fi at its best in that way like it's a very good what if to ask good questions
0: Absolutely. It sparks those huge philosophical questions that you just named. And I'm probably... (laughs) On the given what has happened to Picard, you know that we saw him be assimilated and then rescued. I would probably choose to be assimilated rather than completely die and end my life, uh, with the hope that one day my lovely friends, maybe you too, <laughs> would come to my rescue <laughs> and uh, and and take me back and restore my individuality and my personal free will. Um, So as, as Basim said, you know, the Borg have this superpower of basically assimilating somebody else or maybe a technological entity like a computer, and then instantly learn everything that that external entity knew. And as a scientist, you know, I'm always encountering subjects or concepts that I wish I had taken a class in a long time ago or read a textbook on, but I just didn't have the time. So what is one subject or skill that you wish you had those board powers for that you could just instantly assimilate right now?
2: All knowledge about everything, everywhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right answer. (laughs) You just want to be cute.
2: (laughs) I, I can't get enough of, you know, reading, whether it's books or papers and just learning new things. I feel like that's where a lot of you know, fascination and imagination come from. Like the more you learn, the more you know, imaginative and creative you get. And so if I could just download all that information all at once, that would be amazing. So yeah. oh, why
1: pick and choose? <laughs> um, Definitely I think not I... the internet. Definitely, oh, you'd leave the internet out. That's probably internet wise. Is, yeah. <laughs> you'd get too much.
2: Too much memes and other um, yeah. pop culture.
1: Tweets. I think if I could assimilate anything, my first knee jerk is to say languages, just because I spend so much time trying to teach myself languages. It's like my primary hobby outside of science. But then I think I would lose my hobby. So I don't think I can say that, but maybe accents, like if I could instantly be able to speak without an accent, but still have to learn how to put all the rest together, that would be great. And also cooking would just be so incredibly useful like you eat a dish and then immediately you know exactly how it was made like what ingredients it was where to get those ingredients what pans you need to get from ikea like all of it so cooking or accent probably Damn, for me.
0: i wish cooking works that way i wish we could assimilate <laughs> yeah, right? recipes simply by eating that's that's a great thought somebody should um uh, figure out how that works
1: and and make it a reality Um, As long as I don't need to stick tubes into my skin anywhere, like that part of the Borg is just a little bit too, like there's no knowledge worth that price.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a little creepy there. Um, For me at the moment, I think I would love to learn more about um, this field of complexity science, because I feel like it offers a lot of good avenues for searching for agnostic signs of life and biosignatures. If you could sort of characterize the complexity of a system, maybe uh, you would be able to detect some kind of living system without necessarily assuming a certain composition uh, to it. And that would might be very useful for uh, searching for extraterrestrial life. But uh, enough about that, let's turn to Bosom's paper now. Um, and so for our daring listeners, I will put a link to the preprint of that paper in our show notes so that you can read it if you like. Um, and the paper's title is Borgs. So first of all, the first word <laughs> of the title of the paper is Borgs. Um, Just got to point that out there to people. Okay. So the title is Borgs are giant extra chromosomal elements with the potential to augment methane oxidation. That is certainly a mouthful. And to be honest, I'm having trouble assimilating it myself. Uh, So let's try to break it down. the title says Borgs are giant extra chromosomal elements Basim, could you start by telling us what a chromosome is and from there describe what you mean by an extra chromosomal element?
2: Yeah. So when we think of DNA in a cell, typically we're referring to what we call a chromosome. Um, So that contains the blueprint for what proteins that a cell can make and thereby what processes a cell can do. And it reflects the whole genetic makeup of the organism if it's a multicellular organism. What we mean by an extra chromosomal element is there are pieces of DNA that also sometimes exist within cells outside of that main chromosome. And these elements tend to have sort of accessory functions sometimes. So some of them called plasmids will have things like antibiotic resistance And that's why with bacteria, you could transfer that antibiotic resistance between different bacteria because you can transfer those extra chromosomal DNA elements, even though you're not transferring the full chromosome or the main piece of DNA, if you will. And that also includes viruses a lot of times. Those also tend to be extra chromosomal DNA if they exist within a cell.
0: So, so let me see if I can draw an analogy to my daily life, because I don't often think on the molecular level, but I use computers all the time. So if I called my laptop's hard drive, the chromosome, and I had an external hard drive that I hel- held other files on uh, that could sort of transfer those files between different laptops, is that sort of like what an extra chromosomal element is?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, at least a nice one. If it's a viral one, then it would be more <laughs> trying to steal all your data and then leave and infect other computers.
0: So it sounds like you've discovered a new extra chromosomal element uh, and you know, naming a new scientific discovery must be one of the most fun things to do as a scientist. Who exactly came up with the name Borg for these things? Um, that was actually my
2: advisor's son, he was a big Star Trek fan. Okay. Um, when she described the research to him, he said, "Oh, so like Borgs." And she, when she said that, we were like, "Okay, we have to name it that. That's going to be the name." Because at the time we were just referring to it, you know, to each other as, you know, the Archeal Mystery. Um, and I can get to that in a second. But if we refer to it as the mystery, we had to come up with a name at some point. So when that happened we sort of decided that has to be the name
0: so there was no resistance whatsoever like resistance is no. futile it was the borg <laughs> okay cool um yeah so the reason why you gave it the name the borg is because these borgs these extra chromosomal elements or this archaeal mystery however we want to refer to it has the propensity to assimilate genetic material from other organisms, at least that's what I'm gathering. So what do you mean by assimilate genes from other organisms and how does that happen?
2: So a lot of extra chromosomal elements will sort of grab genes from the host's main chromosome or DNA and import that into their own circular DNA. So when that happens with a process called homologous recombination, um, a lot of times. So it will grab a, a cassette of genes into its own DNA. And then when it leaves the cell um, and infects a new cell, it will have that new functionality within that cell. So that can be something, like I mentioned, with antibiotic resistance. If an exochromosomal element sort of imports that function from a host, then any cell infects after that, it will have that functionality. And evolution sort of sorts that out with, if the function is useful, then that extra chromosomal element could spread more across the population. If it's not useful, then that function could be lost. So over time, you end up accumulating a lot of Interesting new functionalities that are useful to the cell, but not necessarily part of the main hard drive or chromosome.
1: Wow. Could you explain how the Borgs are different then from, say, a virus or just a typical plasmid? Like they're giant, but how giant compared to the rest of the DNA? So, like, if we're talking about an external hard drive here, is this almost an extra laptop or is it just a USB stick? And then what makes it different? from a virus?
2: Yeah, so to explain that, I would have to first explain that they inhabit these hosts where um, the host DNA is about 3 million DNA bases long, or DNA letters, and these extrachromosomal elements are about 1 million base pairs. So that is about a third of the size of the original laptop or hard drive, which is pretty remarkable when we first came across this. Um, so we, in, in our studies, we don't necessarily grow the bacteria, or in this case, archaea, um, arguably the most understudied domain of life compared to bacteria and you know, eukaryotes. But instead of growing them, we extract you know, trillions of DNA fragments from the environment and piece them together using computer programs. And that gives us a look at the encoded DNA of those organisms. Um, and in studying these environments that have the hosts, we found these linear genomes, which was the first surprise because DNA in prokaryotes like archaea and bacteria, they tend to be circular. So they they would not be linear in the way that we found them. Hmm. And they were gigantic, they could be their own archaeal cell. So the first thing we had to eliminate was that they weren't a new sort of species of archaea that we had just stumbled upon. And then after that, comparing them to plasmids and viruses, they also seemed extremely different. So there's about 80% of their encoded genes are completely unknown to science right now. And a lot of the sort of remaining 20% seem to be more similar to the host's genes. So beyond the sort of unknown genes, we also didn't find any of the sort of structural genes, so the genes that form the structure of a virus, so that in, in the case of, you know, the coronavirus, for example, you would have a spike protein, you would have these proteins that are on the surface that encapsulate the DNA. But we didn't find anything like that, which sort of, eliminated the fact that it would be part of any known viral group. And then looking also at how these um, DNA elements could replicate, comparing them to how plasmids replicate, they seem to lack the machinery that would be found there. And that's how we decided that they must be something different, or at the very least, they would be an extremely novel type of plasmid or virus.
0: That's so interesting, wow. Tell us a little bit more about the environment that you found these archaea, I guess, that uh, contained or were in association with the Borgs. Where exactly were you in the world? And uh, what what were you doing there? <laughs> I guess that's a really bad way of asking it.
1: Yeah. So what were you looking for? And where were you looking for things before you knew there were Borgs to look for?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yes. So I was actually studying huge bacteriophages. So those are viruses that infect bacteria. And my study was to collect as many of these as possible to see how they are different and why they're different from smaller bacterial viruses. So we described about 10 new groups of large bacteriophages whose DNA goes up to you know, seven hundred fifty thousand DNA letters. That's about ten to fifteen times the size of a normal bacterial virus, and that's mainly what I was studying. So to come across this even weirder sort of element was a big surprise, but a welcome one. Um, it sort of made us even more interested in the archaeal side of things as well, and not just the bacterial. And we were mostly studying this site where I had found a few of those giant bacteriophages that is very close to um, my advisor's house. So we just went with our gear, with our shovel, and sort of dug in, in the mud and reached in as far as we could and grabbed samples that we extracted DNA from.
0: Um, Wait, so like the, in your advisor's backyard, basically, this is just <laughs> everywhere. This isn't in some remote place where extremophilic life forms live that nobody can access uh, unless they hike for like 20 hours. This is like literally <laughs> like in someone's backyard.
2: Yeah, it was about 30 minute hike from her from, from house.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so that sort of points to the idea that maybe these Borg are everywhere and sort of just living amongst us. And so that begs the question, what impact are they having on our environment? Which brings us to the second half of your paper's title, which is that these real-life Borgs have the potential to do methane oxidation. So Basum, maybe you can explain to us what is meant by methane oxidation.
2: Yeah. So the oxidation of methane is to convert that to something like carbon dioxide, for example. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, and converting that in a way is used as the metabolism of the archaeal cell. So oxidizing that is both beneficial for the archaean, but also beneficial for our environment, because it sort of detoxifies that carbon compound into something that is sort of less potent. For the environment.
0: And because methane and CO2 are both greenhouse gases, the Borgs must impact climate change in some way. On a a global scale, do you see Borgs as being important to the carbon cycling of our planet?
2: Yeah, so they have genes for quite a few biogeochemical cycles, and carbon cycle is um, one of them and something that we found, you know, one of the most exciting, obviously. But they also impact things like the nitrogen cycle, which is very important for agriculture so just having those genes where they would improve that functionality within the host cell is something that would impact many many processes on the planet and the fact that we found them just digging through the mud in no special you know it wasn't a special corner of a cave somewhere that is only found there. This is, and since then we've found them in many more places in, you know, rivers in Colorado, in, um, uh, I won't get here because I don't know how much of that I can actually say.
0: <laughs> no worries, no worries. I understand that it's, it's sensitive when we're right on the cusp of a discovery here. Um, one thing that I want to say is this, this is definitely, an instance, uh, a great example of how in science, oftentimes you're looking for A, but instead of A, you find a B, and then you say, oh, wait, B seems a little bit weird. Actually, it's C, <laughs> and then it's it's all of a sudden this thing that you've never, ever seen before. And I want to know if Borgs are really everywhere, as you describe, in people's backyards, on short hikes, in rivers in Colorado, etc. cetera. Why haven't they been described before? How have we missed them?
2: Um, so there are multiple reasons for this. I think one is that, as I said, a lot of the sort of microbiology tends to rely on culturing and growing different microbes and then studying you know, the viruses that infect them or the plasmids and how they affect their growth and so on. But that really limits our capability of, learning from the environment because if you don't know how to grow something you're not gonna know anything about it and it's actually known that about 99 percent of the known microbes out there we can't grow in the lab so there's quite a huge wealth of knowledge that is out there that we still know next to nothing about and with the approach that we take where we
0: um, release is is frozen frozen for you. He's frozen for me as well. Okay. We have an
1: range. A Borg cube on zero mark two one five. Speed warp nine, We are the Borg. Blow your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Red alert! All hands to battle stations.
0: Engage. Due to a surprise Borg incursion of Sector 01, our subspace frequencies were jammed and we momentarily lost contact with Bosom. However, with the assistance of one Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Elise and I were able to fight off the Borg and restore communications with our colleague
2: uh hello hello can you hey. hear
0: me? yes we yeah. can hear
2: you oh sorry my wi-fi sort of died oh I don't no know worries what happened there but i'm currently connected from my phone can uh-huh. you still hear me
0: yes uh we can still hear you uh hopefully your wi-fi comes back but uh this is working for now um do you do you want to keep going
2: uh, sure. Remind mm-hmm. me where. Uh, I yeah. Cut off.
0: So the last thing that I heard was 99% of the microbes out there, we can't grow in the lab. So maybe you can just start off with that sentence again and then carry on from there.
2: Okay. So 99% of the microbes that are out there, we know that we can't grow in the lab currently. Um, and if you think of that percentage and then the percentage of sort of viruses and plasmids and exochromosomal elements that infect those that we would be able to also get into the lab. It's an even smaller fraction that you know we know enough about. But by taking this approach with getting the DNA from the environment, getting the sequence of that DNA, and then decoding it to see what genes are on there computationally and what those genes do, you sort of expand your realm of, possibility for study, so that it's not just what you can grow in the lab. And this is something, for example, with the archaeal host of these Borgs, the methanoperidins, currently we don't know how to get a stable culture of them in the lab. Um, There was a recent study that showed some enrichment of them from an environmental sample, but if you don't know how to grow this host, then you would not be able to find a Borg like this. And even if you can get sort of the DNA, there are many reasons why you would fail to get the full sequence of a Borg. That includes, for example, the fact that they have these very weird repetitive elements across them that we still don't know actually what the function of those are. So stretches of DNA that sort of repeat themselves, sort of like a stutter across the genome, and that is many, many, many times across the genome, and they're not always the same sort of stutter. And that could be playing a role in sort of the regulation within the Borgs, or they could be playing a role with actual proteins that those genes encode. That's you know a whole other mystery that we're delving into to sort of understand what that is. But if you have that stutter, it sort of makes it difficult to even get the genome computationally. So that's sort of a number of reasons why those would have been missed earlier.
1: So speaking of like finding these, you know, what it would look like if you had one in the lab, I was wondering how we should understand what a Borg like looks like, you know, in air quotes, looks like, should we think of it as a part of its host, like a sort of like a plasmid we often think of like, oh, it's associated with this particular organism, it's common that it shows up with E. coli, for instance, and you would be, it would be odd to find it in a different organism, or is it more like a virus that we kind of debate whether or not they should be considered their own organisms? Would you see them you know, floating around outside of the cells, just hanging out by themselves, or would they mostly be inside the cells? I realize a lot of this is probably speculative right now, but do you have any like hunches about what they're, they kind of look like in the environment?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is sort of a fascinating question that we can't wait to answer. Um, So if they are viruses or are more like viruses, they could exist outside of the host as sort of their own cube or shell outside of the host cell. If they're more like plasmids, then they would likely persist within the host and only within the host. But currently, we don't have any information for what they look like. Um, I will say that they likely exist a lot of their time in the host cell, just because we also see evidence for recombination between the Borgs. So not only do they pick up genes from their host cell. So for example, genes like the genes for methane oxidation or nitrogen fixation, they also pick up genes from other Borgs. Which they have to have existed within the same cell, um, and their DNAs sort of interacted to import that functionality.
1: Well, so a Borg cube assimilating another Borg cube—that's
2: <laughs> exactly sort of sharing their their knowledge with each other.
0: That sounds like a great episode of future Star Trek to have some some sector of the Borg. Go rogue and start assimilating other parts of the board collective, trying to take over it like an internal board war. (laughs) I think we need to write that episode. It's
1: like a tumor. It's like a tumor getting its own cancer. Yeah.
0: Like. (laughs) So bring this this discussion back to Star Trek. Um, I often point to the Borg in Star Trek as a fictional example of living beings that do not evolve strictly through Darwinian evolution, that is, they do not learn through reproduction and trial and error of random mutations. Instead of generating their own novelty, they kind of assimilate novelty that other life forms have evolved or created. So Basim, I'm really curious, do you see your real life Borgs as somewhat breaking or altering the Darwinian mold of how life evolves? Or do you, do you not see it that way?
2: I think it contributes to, you know, the same processes that sort of evolution already acts upon. It's not the vertical sort of thinking that we tend to have when we learn about evolution, but It's more of what we call horizontal gene transfer, so it does transfer genes across different cells, and then that information gets selected upon either for or against to um, incorporate that gene into the future generations, as opposed to sort of a mutation that would then be selected for or against. So it does function in an analogous way, but it is a very interesting aspect that also contributes to the evolution of a species.
0: And my last scientific question is, do we have any clues where these Borgs came from? Like, what is their origin story? Do you think they date back to the origin of life itself or do you think that they were a more modern innovation?
2: Yeah, that's also another fascinating story because Their range of sizes, you know, some of them are about 700,000 bases of DNA. Some of them are up to a million. We don't know how much they tend to collect from their hosts. If, you know, the shorter ones, if they sort of got reduced from a larger Borg, or if the longer ones sort of accumulated more genes, or if, you know, this could just not even be a plasmid or a virus or sort of a separate entity, maybe this was sort of a sister lineage that got reduced within the original host into a much smaller piece of DNA. Um, That's also an idea that we sort of discussed in the ending of the paper, since they tend to also have genes that are the ribosomal genes or genes that form the machinery for protein production And those genes tend to be very, very similar to the host. And it's currently unclear why that sort of element would pick up that gene and retain it to be so similar to the host that maybe it was some other lineage that got reduced just simply because of its large size and because plasmids, as we think of them, don't necessarily carry genes for protein production.
0: Fascinating. Well, this is uh such an exciting discovery and congratulations again basim um what a what a wonderful find and it's just yet another biological mystery that um is going to spark i think years and years of further research so this is super awesome and it was great to talk to you i have just a few wrap-up questions for you both the first is where can people follow you on the internet? I'm sure they're going to want to keep up to date with the story of the Borgs. And of course, read some of Elise's latest writings. So um, Basim, where can people find your thoughts on the web?
2: So you can find me on Twitter at the microbe guy.
1: Awesome. And Elise? I'm also on Twitter, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, It finally happened. I put it off for a while. I'm at, at, Elise Cuts. So E L I S E C U T T S. And I tweet out my articles when they go up.
0: Very cool. Uh, and the last question that I have for you both is something that I've been asking all of my guests in 2021. Because, you know, we just went through this really horrendous, very stressful past. Year and a half or so now. And um, I always want to end on a positive note because Star Trek is all about optimism for the future. And I want to end these podcasts on just a happy note by asking my guests to tell me one thing that makes you hopeful for the future. It could be related to your scientific research, it could be related to Star Trek, it could be related to neither of those two, just one thing that gives you hope for the future
1: studying microbes, I think it becomes really, really difficult to ever believe that humans could destroy the planet so badly that nothing would survive. So even when I find it really difficult to have a lot of hope for people, I always have hope for the planet because like, there's no way we're going to be worse than an asteroid coming out of outer space, throwing everything (laughs) into chaos and, you know, just killing everything on the entire planet. (laughs) Like, Life is hardy. Microbes can exist in, in hot springs that'll kill you. They can exist deep in the bottom of the ocean. They can come back alive after like, hundreds of thousands of years and even longer. So yeah, I think it's it's hopeful to think that kind of no matter what we do, we get to make choices about our future. But the Earth will carry on no matter how long or short we want. We end up deciding to make our time. So it's kind of grim, but it's also hopeful for me. Yeah, life finds life's tough. A way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Life's tough. I hate that. Everyone always says life finds a way. <laughs> it's a it meme. Does, it's one but... of those memes
0: that Fasim doesn't want to download
1: into his brain. <laughs> yeah, for <a> good reason. <laughs> no. yeah.
0: I guess
2: an analogous or in a similar vein to that, studying sort of new microbes, new viruses, new plasmids, they tend to harbor such a rich diversity of different genes, most of which we know Next to nothing about, and they tend to almost always lead to some sort of biotechnological tool that will actually help a lot of people. Whether that's for something like with CRISPR Cas systems that were originally an immune system that bacteria used to, or archaea to defend against these sorts of extra chromosomal elements that now can be used for treating genetic diseases, that gives me hope that we can find answers to a lot of our problems by studying the biological diversity that's currently out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great note to end on because it's both hopeful, but also humbling to know that sometimes the solution to our problems is to look at the tiniest, simplest form of life on earth, which has invented it, you know, billions of years ago. And um, that's, that's really cool. I I think you're both right. Microbes are, are still the rulers of this planet and will be for a long time and uh and there's nothing we can do about it but maybe learn (laughs) from them and uh and and be in awe of them and hopefully find some analogs of them somewhere else in the universe. So thank you both for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It was wonderful to hear about real life Borgs and how their name was inspired by Star Trek. And as always, to uh, have Elise cuts back on the show.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening to our interview with Basim Al-Shayyib. As you heard, this work is right on the frontier of human knowledge, and I'm sure that there will be many updates to this story in the months and years to come. But for now, let's just revel in the fact that Star Trek was the inspiration for naming these newly discovered genetic elements. You know, we see Trek's influence in technology all the time, from flip phones to touchscreens. But it's nice to have a reminder that even our most basic research, our investigation of the natural world, has been touched by Star Trek 2. In this instance, the Borg from Star Trek has granted us an awesome lens through which we can understand a novel biological entity right here on Earth, which we've named in the Borg's honor. For a Trekkie scientist, let me tell you, it doesn't get cooler than that. Until next time, see you out there. I, I I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, so I guess I have to say go bear oh, nice. at least once <laughs>
1: Yeah, research. for sure. Just quick, like science question. It's a little too niche for the uh-huh. podcast. Uh-huh. So yes. I work on metagenomes. So I'm sort of interested in like, are these Borgs only found associated with these archaea?
2: Um, right now, it's the archaea. Sitting We're sitting still here, like, you know oh, trying to. In my
1: data <laughs> <set>? <laughs> yeah, you should definitely look for them. The the answers are beneath our feet.